Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Santa H. from New Jersey, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, December 18th, to 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Today we are reading from the Big Book, and we are on page 4, the third paragraph that begins with, We Want to Live With. Today's readers are The Twelve Steps, Esther F., The Twelve Traditions, Nora S., and reading the literature today are Craig F., Amy W., and Allison L. The share ID number for Sunday, December 17, 2017, our special edition, special edition meeting is 10,808, that's one Eight zero eight. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive overeating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Esther F. to please read the 12 steps. Good morning. This is Esther F., a recovered compulsive overeater from Cleveland, Ohio. The 12 steps. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over food that our life had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. 
praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you for letting me do service, and I pass. And thank you, Esther F. I will now ask Nora S. to please read the 12 traditions. Good morning. This is Nora S., a compulsive overeater calling from Maydock, Ontario, in Canada. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven. Every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinions on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public uh, relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, film, television, and other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, and I pass. And thank you, Nora S., How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on a direction for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share. But we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speaker should be muted. 
Today we resume our study of the big book on page four, the third and last paragraph that begins with, we want to live with through two paragraphs ending, which renewed my wife's hope. Comments will be on both paragraphs. I will now ask Craig F. to begin reading. Hi, this is Craig F. Recovered in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, Good morning. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real unemployment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drinking, to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety, which renewed my wife's hope. Um, We're seeing, of course, the progression of the disease. It's uh, uh, progressed to the point that... uh, that, that he says uh, liquor ceased to be a luxury; it became a necessity. Um, you know, uh, excess food, uh, comfort food ceased to be a luxury; it became a necessity. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, I, I I got to the point where I uh, felt like it calmed my nerves. I really did, and and uh, you know, uh, but there was there's this tagline at the end. Uh, nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought I could control the situation. I woke up uh, every morning, uh, be- even before the program and in relapse, I would wake up every morning thinking, today I could control it. And, and you know, every now and then I could. Uh, every now and then there'd be a day or two or a month or two even where I could stick to a diet, but those periods became fewer and fewer and, and farther and farther in between as the disease progressed. But, you know, my, my, uh, ego would remember that, that, well, don't you remember that you controlled it for six months or you, you went on a diet and it lasted almost a year, but it, it always fell, you know, there was always that, that period that, or that, something that would come up, uh, a, uh, uh, a stress, a strain, a, uh, a broken heart, uh, a disappointment, uh, a buildup of human emotion, uh, as our, my friend says, where uh, I couldn't control it. And, uh, you know, I, I would eat. And uh, so the periods of sobriety gave hope to the people that loved me, but it also gave me hope and it built up that uh, that idea in me that, uh, that, that I could control it. And, and that, that, that lie, uh, I would pursue that lie, uh, almost to the gate to death. But today I don't have to live that way today. There's a solution 
and uh, the solution is uh, he's going to get to the solution soon, and, and I'm looking forward to that. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. And we thank you, Craig F. And we're going to open the floor for comments for approximately three minutes on what was read. Now we'll be writing down names, and I'd ask that if you would please call your name out one time. And when it's your turn to share, if you can avoid using speakerphones, that would be very helpful. So who would like to comment for approximately three minutes on what was read? Jackie B. Okay, this is we're gonna stop right here. And we'll come back to the rest of you. If everybody can mute their line, I'll read to you what I have. I have Janice M, Katie G, Larry K, Kim G, Judy R, Judith R, and Jackie B. And if I did miss you, I apologize. We will get you the next round. Good morning, Janice M. And good morning to you, Santa. Nice to hear you. And good morning to everyone. My name is Janice M. And I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Yes, what 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 a nice reading. <laughs> well, it's always nice. You know, what a crush to Bill. You know, he had a lot of money and a lot of people around him, and he had quite an ego, didn't he? Um, just like me, I had an ego. But, um, you know, it doesn't matter about making a lot of money. Um, you know, at this time I'm starting to see, you know, because I did make a lot of money. I'm starting to see, geez, you know, I don't have, I don't have that illusion that I used to have. I'm starting to see about my eating. I'm starting to see how my attitude has changed, my behaviors that I that I got into that I would never get into before. And so, um, you know, we're starting to see that, you know, he's a drunk. He is a drunk. We see his drinking, like it was said, progressive. He cannot no longer hold a job. Imagine no longer hold a job when he could get anything that he wanted. People just would flock to him. Um, and I love, I love, love, love liquor. Liquor cease to be a luxury. With me, certain foods, you know, I'd buy the best, I'd buy the best. Now I came to a point in my eating career that, you know, I would I would settle for anything. And that's because it, it, it wasn't exciting anymore. I didn't need to get the best. I was in the throes of addiction. I needed it. I didn't care what I bought. I used to go to the best bakeries, you know, get the high, high-end, um, you know, substances. And now I would just, you know, uh, get anything store-bought or whatever. And that's addiction. I needed it. There was no more excitement in the best things. The, the my substances, my food, my behaviors controlled me. You know, before I could control what I chose to do. You know, but now it just—I just crossed the line of excitement of um, into addiction, and I was starting to eat for different reasons. Now, you know, I had to—I had to eat in order to live. I had to—I needed it. I, it wasn't—you know—it wasn't fun anymore. So, in order to to be able to live, I needed that food, and that's to me was addiction. It controlled me, and with that, I'm going to pass. Thanks. And thank you, Janice M. And next we have is Katie G. 
Good morning, Santa. Good morning, my fellows. This is Katie G, recovered compulsive overeater, anorexic and bulimic in Boston, starting my timer. Yeah, an unwelcome hanger on. So what does this mean? This persistent, annoying follower along. So as our teachers have been saying, you know, Bill was, you know, he had a great role at these brokerage places and now he's a hanger on. He's just spending all his time there. And for me, that's who I became, um, excuse me, at the yoga studios. I would show up earlier and earlier for my exercise bulimia um, just so I could get into the class. And I remember the owner of one of the studios just giving me this look of disgust. Like I would arrive at the studio before him because I needed to be there. I had to be there. I had no choice. It was a necessity. It was vital. It didn't matter what the weather was. I had to get my exercise. And I would spend all these times at exercise studios and, you know, I needed like, I just have this like gross feeling of just like needing these other people and having no choice but to like be there to get my fix, to get my bulimia, to feel like I'm okay. And yeah, I mean, food and starvation was required. It was indispensable. It was essential. It was, it was food was my drug of no choice. I don't understand this drug of choice. Like food and starvation became essential. Like I didn't have a choice but to use. Like every day was about using, um, whether it be throwing up or exercising or, or what have you. And, um, and I love this idea. Like I thought I could control the situation. And um, our teachers teach us when we're looking at what are our allergies. It's not about like what are all the foods that I binge on. It's what are the, all the substances and behaviors that I keep going back to to control and telling myself that I can control. And I'm going to tell you like a couple years ago, I thought – What's the problem? Main problem in your head, Katie. But I thought that I could control my exercise bulimia. I thought that if I just, you know, moderated it enough, if I if I acted like my husband more, if I just, you know, that I could commit it to myself, that I could commit it to to God on my own without anybody else. And I cannot, you know. And and pain is the great motivator. And there are things in my life believe it or not, that I still think, oh, I can control the situation. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to, I'm going to get you and you and you to do this so I feel okay. And then I'm snot-nosed, messy, crying on my knees saying, God, you know what? Whatever you want, whatever you do, I can't do this anymore. And, um, and my, my delusional thinking that I can control things is finally shattered. You know, but it takes, just like with Bill, for me, it took a lot of pain. Pain is my greatest motivator. And thanks. God, for all of you that remind me, like, I have no choice, I have no power, I have no control, and that is the essential of my step one. I'm going to continue to show up with all of you as a privilege, one day at a time, shoulder to shoulder, and with that, I do pass. Thank you, Katie G. Good morning, Larry Kay. Good morning, Santa. Larry Kay recovered uh, from Chicago. You know, we read, you know, he, he went, uh, we went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as, as a result of a brawl with the taxi driver. You know, his wife had to, to work in a department store. This was 19, you know, the 1930s, late 20s, 30s. There, there weren't too many women that were the primary uh, breadwinner. You know, that, that must have been horribly, horribly humbling for this guy to realize that his wife had to begin to work in a department store coming home exhausted to find him drunk. You know, the, the, um, I can see some parallels in my life. I, I had a job, but I, I was married. I, 
my my wife would come home and find me drunk many times would come home and I can remember I can remember one time in particular she came home earlier than I expected her and um and I didn't have time to hide you know what I was eating eating right out of the uh, half gallon uh, container of ice cream you know sitting in front of the TV this wasn't the guy that she she started dating I can tell you you know she met his representative now she was going to begin to see more and more the addict, you know, and, and I remember just the, um, the embarrassment that I felt. I felt very comfortable around this woman, but the embarrassment because, um, because she, 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 you know, I had uh, unveiled and exposed one of my secrets. See, I thought I could keep my secrets all very comfortably compartmentalized, and there was another secret there, you know. Um, there was a lot of fear around there. I'm sure there was with Bill too. And yeah, food ceased to be a luxury. It was a necessity for me because if I didn't get into my food, I couldn't go teach. If I didn't have my heroin foods, you know, I couldn't function very well. A lot like Bill, see the noose around my neck was tightening. And yet what's so ironic here is the last paragraph, nevertheless, I still thought I can control the situation. And same with me, you know, it's the human condition to try to control the situation, to continue to look for some way that we can get a handle on this. And I did again and again and again, because I didn't understand my problem. And I certainly didn't understand. We need to understand the problem. We need then to understand the solution to the problem. And by gosh, we need to understand how to bring that solution to light. And I didn't know any of those things. So the disease was going to get worse for me, and it, it's going to get worse for Bill. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. And thank you, Larry Kay. Good morning, Kim G. Good morning, Santa. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. You know, I, I want to encourage everyone on the line today, you know, look at this. Look at your own history. Do you see this happening? You know, this progression of fun and excitement and necessity to oblivion. So we're in the necessity part right now. And I can see that in my own history. You know, I can see that I was able to keep my binges to weekends. There were celebrations that I had, you know, I I ate at. There were tragedies, of course, I had to eat at. But when it started to become a necessity, those binges were bleeding into the weeknights. Then they were bleeding into the weekdays. Then it became any emotion, any event. It came from social to solitary. You know, when it talks about bathtub gin, you know, I can remember going from the best restaurants in Philadelphia to, to now binging in the parking lots of fast food restaurants. I remember having to have the best brand names and then going to store brand names because I needed more in order to get that same effect. You know, I was just going to have one, but of course, I, when Costco and Sam's Club and BJ's opened up, that one bag of Doritos was really supposed to feed 20 people, but to me, it was just one. Because it was no longer about extremes. I needed it in order to take the edge off. I don't know if you understand that feeling, but when I was so uncomfortable in abstinence, I just, what food did for me, it just helped me get right. Because I never felt right in life. You know, and the consequences would start to pile up. And people started begging me, Kim, why are you doing this? Don't you see the consequences? And they're looking at me with that faulty emotional appeal. And they're saying, Kim, can't you see what the food is doing to you? And that didn't matter when I was morbidly obese, 
when I was bulimic or when I was underweight, whatever those consequences are, people are begging me, stop. And I'm looking at them, my eyes glazed over going, don't you understand what the food is doing for me? I have no choice. But it's talking here, Bill still is, isn't done because there's periods of sobriety which renewed his wife's hope, renewed his hope, it renewed my hope. I know my own personal history in OA was that I, you know, I came into OA and I had six years of, of, of sobriety. But of course, that was because of the tools. It was because of dieting with group support. And then what happened for me personally was I was asked to do some service that had an abstinence requirement. And my keen alcoholic brain thought, well, if I break by abstinence, I don't have to say no. And of course, I can get back on track. Not understanding that my disease had progressed, that after six years, I couldn't get any more than eight or nine months. And then I couldn't get more than eight or nine weeks. And then I couldn't get eight or nine hours. And then 17 years in, in a five-year relapse, I finally surrendered to this book. And let me assure you that for the last seven years, I have been recovered and I have been contently abstinent. That six years was painful. These last seven years have been happy, joyous, and free. And with that, I pass. And we thank you, Kim G. from New Jersey. And next we have is Judith R. Good morning. Good morning, Santa. Good morning, visionaries. This is Judith R. Recovered in Vermont. Um, this, um, I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Now that's one thing I thought could not happen to an overeater. I had never experienced anything like that, but I had three and a half years of abstinence. I went to a foreign country and made it through six months and then had a horrible relapse and was in that relapse for a year and two months. And at the, toward the very end of the relapse, I got together with my brothers and sisters for Christmas. And right when they said, well, how was your time in Israel? I had started to eat. And I had so many stories to tell them. And in that moment, I just said, well, it was okay. You know, I just did not take that moment to tell them the wonderful stuff that had happened. And I went to sleep and woke up very early in the morning and I was shaking because I had eaten sugar. And I, my body did not know what to do. I was so freaked out and so anxious. So I drank. I drank alcohol to put myself back to sleep because I was so upset. So I didn't do a tumbler full of gin. I don't remember what I did because I don't drink alcohol. But um, I never thought that my overeating could could get me to that stage. And um, it was one of the last things I had to learn before um, I surrendered and got what got the abstinence that I have now, for which I am eternally grateful and especially grateful to vision because now I have not only abstinence, but I have full recovery. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. And thank you, Judith R., and next we have is Jackie B. Good morning. Good morning, Santa. This is Jackie B. Can I be heard? Yes, you can. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your service and your shares today. I guess what I want to add to this is um, my disease got so bad that certain restaurants and certain 
eateries had me on speed dial um, to the point that I was no longer known as Jackie from B from the Bronx. I was known as the Totone lady, the, uh, the um, you know, this food lady, that food lady. They, everybody knew me by the lady, by a name or a certain food that I would always buy in that particular uh, store. Um, and today I make it clear that no matter where I go, I am Jackie. Um, and that's important to me today because today I have an identity. The food is not my identity. Um, I remember, you know, the biggest thrill was trying to get an 800-pound, 800-piece bag of Tootsie Rolls through um, Sam's Club without my husband seeing it and then trying to stuff it in my pocketbook so he would not see it when we get in the car. And as he's talking to me, turning my face to look out the window, but really I'm popping uh, Tootsie Rolls. Um, you know, running out and leaving a newborn um, in her, you know, um, in her crib to go down to the corner store to buy as much junk food as I can and then get back to the house before she may wake up. You know, these are the things I did in my life. Am I proud of it? No. Um, I got in an argument with my mom over her not buying my binge food and buying her binge food and then slapping her. I mean, am I happy about those things? No. But those are the experiences that remind me today that the recovery and the Jackie today is so much more wonderful because today I do the steps. Today um, I have issues my husband's not very healthy. Um, we're losing one car. We're going down to a one-car family. Um, I'm losing a lot of my freedom there. Um, but, you know, with all those things, I'm saying, God, you're teaching me to have patience and love and tolerance. God, you're teaching me that, you know what, i got to carry less on the train <laughs> and just carry the necessities. Um, you know, this is not the Jackie of... Yes, the years. This is the Jackie of today, the recovered Jackie that knows that, you know what, it'll be all right. It'll be bumpy. It'll be rocky. But it'll be sane. It'll be loving. It'll be caring. It'll be reaching out. It's you knowing that today I am taking care of as long as I am willing to put down those substances that trigger me. Be present. Thank you. Be present and say, hi, I'm Jackie from the Bronx and I'm recovered today. One day at a time. Thank you. And with that, I pass. And thank you, Jackie B. And if you're just joining us, we are on page four in the big book. We begin reading the third, last paragraph that begins with we, li we want to live with. And we read two paragraphs this morning and comments on both. So we'll continue. Who would like to comment for approximately three minutes on what was written? Nicole yes. I heard it. Nicole P., I think it was. Harlan, I got you. Lisa B. Lisa B., I got you. Rita Andy, P. Yes. Leslie w. Rita Leslie w. P. Nicole Leslie P. W. I heard it, Nicole. I think that was Nicole W. Nicole P. Nicole P. Okay, we'll stop right here. Um, Nicole P., I have you already. Lisa B., Nicole P., Harlan G, I believe I heard Reba P, Leslie W. 
Who else? What did I miss? Sandy S. Sandy S. Okay. Hello. Right. This is a great list here. I got you, madam. Okay, this is a great list. Okay, let's get started. Lisa B., good morning. Good morning, Santa. Thank you so much for your service and for everyone that's here. My name is Lisa B. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Greenville, South Carolina. And um, this is such a powerful paragraph because it's talking about it, the progression. The progression is what's shown here. So for me, my progression went underground. It became really subtle, insidious and in subtle, and it, like, it, it wedged itself into my life. It burrowed. It burrowed underground like a snake or a rodent, and it became so... Uh, I don't know how to describe it, insidious, and um, but really a part of me, so much a part of me. So when he talks about we went to live with my parents, well, if I just took the first few words, I went to live with, and then filled in the blank, my disease. I went to live with my disease and lived like that for many, many, many years, and I just didn't think I was that bad. But it started to rot away at the very core of my being, not showing itself yet, manifesting itself yet in my body, but it manifested itself in my mind, in my spirit, and I imploded within myself. You know, this book tells me that self-absorption, self-centeredness is the root of my problem. Well, that's what happened to me. I became so obsessed with self. No one else mattered. I just walked over people, didn't know the harms that I was doing, definitely was cut off from my higher power. And, you know, for me as an addict, I need to make something bigger than this disease, and my higher power has to become bigger to me consciously. I have to be consciously aware of my higher power and live in these steps daily, consciously, because this disease is so big that if I don't live these steps every day, that self-absorption, it weasels itself back. It never goes away entirely, but these steps, it's like a a roadmap of how to be free from that. So that's what happened to me. I actually started dying inside, so much so that I think it probably even accelerated a genetic heart condition that I was born with. And um, the doctor told me I would die if I didn't get open heart surgery. And I really believe that it's because I was rotting on the inside. And um, because I didn't show it outwardly in my food, oh, but you could see it in my face, the hardness. You could feel it from me. There was just, I was so full of resentment, fear, envy, jealousy, all of that. And that's the thing with this illness. It puts its foot in the doorway and it just stays there. It stays there. It's very patient. But I will share that as I got older, my body became weaker. And what I used to be able to do with food and exercise that I could do years ago, oh, it would just have me down on the ground with its foot on my throat. I was dying from this illness, but I looked okay. And I think that was the worst part of it. So I didn't know how far out in the ocean I was with this illness when I came to a vision for you. And I thought, you guys were so much worse than me. That's why you need to work so hard, you know? (laughs) And now I know from listening to you and getting a recovered sponsor that I was in so much denial. And today I'm recovered and free, but I hold on to my higher power in these steps like my life depends on it. I pass. Thank you, Lisa B. And I will ask if everyone would just be conscious of the time to stay within three minutes. I want to really get everybody in who wants to share as many as possible. So we'll continue. Nicole P., good morning. 
Good morning, Santa. Thank you for your service. I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive reader from Savannah, Georgia. Wow. Um, that latter part, or hardly drew a sober breath, I had to underline that. There's a period in my young life where I was like, I couldn't find a job, and of course, being the addict I am, I felt sorry for myself. You know, I was, i never forget, I was sitting in my parents' bedroom like, what's going on? As I'm eating my second Nutty Buddy, sipping on a large cup of juice. There's something wrong with these people. Why aren't they hiring me? And how selfish I was. Here I am living with my parents rent-free, by the way, and they're coming home from work. And what am I doing? All they ask of me is to keep my room clean, to do some chores around the house. But no, I wanted to sit in front of the TV for hours and hours, binging on food that they bought from the grocery store. And, I mean, I thank God for my parents because there are many times they could have kicked me out because I really wasn't doing anything. But it's like they saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. And it's weird, it took me so long to tell my mother that I was in program, and her reaction in my mind was, oh, no, she's going to judge me, but she was the most supportive. Liquor seems to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Oh, yeah. Woke up thinking about food, went to bed thinking about food. If I wasn't getting my fix, I was a not a happy camper. I rem- I'll never forget, and this was in program, I was on my diet, and (laughs) that's what I call it, because that's what it was. And I was working out three times a day, four times a week, restricting food. I did almost everything but throw it up. And my mom said, well, you're, you're getting so small, let me go work out with you. I clearly worked my mom out a little too hard because she got off the treadmill and went to go throw up. This is how much my disease had taken a hold of me. Instead of getting off the treadmill, seeing if my mom was okay, I had to finish those last three minutes on the treadmill because I had to finish my workout. And I knew right then and there, oh, my gosh, Nicole, you have a problem. And after that, I picked up this book, and I cried that day, and I said, oh, my goodness. I tried to do it my way, and it didn't work. And... I was like, you know, I I thought I still could have the control. Like, I can control this. I'm fine. I'm young. I'm vibrant. I've done it before. And I renewed my family's hope. Like, oh, I got it. But what I didn't do was I was so focused on the physical recovery, I completely ignored the thought that I was spiritually bankrupt. And because I was spiritually bankrupt, I was not living the best life I could live, and I wasn't introducing the real me, introducing a representative. And through all this, I can say I went from bathtub gin to knowing my worth, and now I can bring story to other people. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole P. Thank you so much. And next we have is Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Santa. Thank you very much for your service. And I also want to thank Team Monday for making this magnificent meeting possible. I'm Harlan G., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm not going to focus on liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity because a lot of people have done it more eloquently than me. What I want to focus on is the permanent state of defeat that this disease brings about in my life. 
Lois was a Burnham, and her parents were Dr. and Mrs. Burnham. Dr. Burnham was a gynecologist. But anyway, they hated Bill. They thought Bill was a blowhard, but they hated him also because um, Lois suffered from an ectopic pregnancy where she was hemorrhaging out. And Lois called her dad at about 6 p.m. And Lois's dad comes over to the house. She couldn't reach her regular doctor for whatever reason. Lois's dad comes to the house. And at about 7 p.m., he says, we've got to get you to the hospital. And he leaves a note on the kitchen table for Bill to come to the hospital. Bill shows up at the hospital the night after Lois almost died. They couldn't stop the bleeding until my God knows when. And Bill shows up at the hospital at about 9.30 the next morning. Drunk. He stinks. He smells like a combination bathroom and liquor. He hasn't shaved. He's wearing the clothes that he was wearing the day before. And the nurses are instructed not to allow Bill to go into Lois's room until Dr. Burnham, who waited there the entire night, sees him. And Dr. Burnham says to Bill Wilson, I wish my daughter had never met you. You stink. You're a drunk. Get yourself together and go in and see your wife. And when Bill was going good, he was a very, very big a tutor of his own horn. Look, I bought your daughter a big piano. Look, I bought your daughter a fur coat. Look, I brought your, bought your daughter this, all this. And then when he was going bad, the Burnhams were going, hmm, I told you so. So when we read the line, we went to live with my wife's parents. That is a huge defeat for Bill. Bill didn't want to go live with the Burnhams at 182 Clinton Street. He had provided Lois with a beautiful life, and there he was, defeated by his alcoholism. He finds a job and loses it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. You think he was sober when he's fighting with the taxi driver? I doubt it. He was to draw, he was to, no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. And when Lois went to work in, the, in that department store, as Larry said before, this uh-huh. isn't the world we're living in. This was the early 1930s when a man's responsibility was to work, and he wasn't, and Lois was. This disease is a permanent state of defeat. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. And thank you, Harlan G. And next we have is Reva P. Good morning. This is Reva P., grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Two things struck me. Uh, first, as everybody else has shared, um, food and sugar uh, becoming a necessity. And the whole idea of the bathtub gin, which is sort of watered down gin and not the best quality, reminds me how it used to take more and more and more to get the effect. And I didn't care about the quality of what I was buying as long as it had a huge sugar content and white flour, I was good. It could be like the day-old stuff. but the thing that struck me the most was that I thought, I still thought I could control the situation. And how is he controlling the situation? By periods of sobriety. 
Now, if I'm controlling by periods of abstinence and I think that's the solution, I'm in big trouble because when I'm abstinent, that's when I start feeling really uncomfortable. That's when I get the rids, right? The restless, irritable, and discontent. And it's such a great reminder that even today, as long as I think I can control anything way beyond the food, my kids, my family members' health, my finances. If I think I'm going to control something and I start with that mindset of rolling up the sleeves, I'm in trouble. And that's when food gets loud because I work myself up to this like tense, tizzy state. Um, and then I need to calm myself down with the substance. But this reminds me that the greater aspect of my disease is not the food, it's my thinking. And I constantly need to keep this in check and keep my channel clear with the 10, 11, 12, because I get tempted thinking I can control the smallest things and the biggest things. And that gets me in so much trouble. So thank you, God, there's a way to change the thinking so that I don't need the food, I don't need more and more, I get the effect. Um, through the steps, through access to a power that I never thought um, was going to do this for me. Um, and with that, I pass. And thank you, Reva P. Leslie W., good morning. Good morning, Santa. This is Leslie W., a recovered compulsive overeater in Tennessee. And I wanted to share on the humiliation. Um, <clears throat> obviously, it was humiliating for Bill to have to move in with his in-laws. Um, nobody wants to move in with their in-laws. <laughs> but uh, it was just a real um, humiliating time for him. And the destruction of ego had begun. And that was the same thing that had happened for me um, when my disease activated. Um, I had, uh, you know, um, thought that I could have it all. Um, I had my own business in Nashville um, on Music Row. I had employees, and I just had a baby. And I thought that I could, you know, continue running my business and running a household and taking care of a little baby. And I don't know, let's see what else I can add to the list of my superpowers. I just thought I could just do it all. Well, what happened was um, my world just imploded and um, I lost my business. I lost my sanity. I lost my health. Um, I would not get out of the house. I mean, my my life revolved around nursing, eating, and and, and sleeping, and that was it. That was my life. I um, it was a very dark time for me, and a very humiliating time for me. However, um, through that, you know, I was able to find this program. And I was able to find God again. And I was able to find peace and serenity in my life. And to know that um, I don't have it all together. That was a facade that I presented to the world for many, many years. And, and, and that, that was smashed in every way possible. 
But I'm glad it was because now I can be a real authentic person. And with that, I pass. And thank you, Leslie W. Good morning, Sandy S. Hi, Sandy S. from Asheville. I am just so grateful for this meeting and to be abstinent for a very long time by the grace of God. And when I hear this story, it reminds me how powerless I was. I mean, that's what stands out for me, like almost from the start. I I never remember. It was a necessity, the food. There, There was no doubt about it. I felt I had no control. The only control I had was the suicidal thoughts. That was the only thing that that I felt like if I just kept thinking like the only way out is to kill myself. You know, thank God that did not happen. You know, but I I'm one of the few people that I feel very different from a lot of people in vision. I don't have any trigger foods, but I was totally debilitated by all food. And um, humiliation wasn't the issue. I didn't care how humiliated I was. And I was humiliated. The issue was there was just no way out. You know, and what I want to share is I did have a spiritual experience 41 years ago, have been abstinent. And for me, the most important thing in my life is being abstinent and surrendering to God. I mean, one can't go without the other. I can't stay abstinent unless I have the desire to surrender. I wish I was always surrendered. I mean, that would be fabulous. It would be living the most incredible life. But I definitely have the desire to surrender. And when I hear this story, it terrifies me because I never want to go back to where I was. I mean, I am so transformed. And especially in the last year with the vision group, it's amazing. Um, and like, I know it's going to continue one day at a time, just as the disease was doing push-ups and still is, my recovery is doing push-ups. I mean, every day I really feel, feel, embody God in my life and being an agnostic, you know, that's pretty amazing. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sandy S. Good morning, Matt M. Thank you, Scott. I didn't think you heard me. Good morning, everyone. This is Matt M. Compulsive here from New Jersey. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity for me. At a young age, I started with this disease. I started since I was eight years old, and, and sooner or later, the older I got, the more and more food I needed. And then after my mom died um, in 2004, I, I, started, I was off to the races. I started eating my like truckload full of Kit Kat bars and Oreo cookies and fast food. I couldn't get enough food because I was trying to fill a God-sized hole my mother used to be and my family used to be because they passed away. And I thought, you know, I'm going to feel better. You know, the more, the more I can get, I'll never have enough food. And you know what they say, one is too many and a thousand is not enough. Well, I definitely understood what Bill, what Bill was going through, like how he must have felt, you know. I needed that food more than I needed and needed to breathe, you know, and, um, you know, it's required. Food would be required for me to function during the day. I barely did anything else during the day. A lot of the times I woke up at 12 noon, got my first meal. I have two breakfasts that I have like, later on, two lunches and two dinners and then two snacks, and uh, gradually things got worse, you know. I gained more weight. I gained weight left and right. 
and um, I started to put on the weight fast that I can, like, you know, keep up with myself, and uh, by the time before I knew it, I was up to 660 pounds, and uh, not a nice place to be, because I was, I was, I was beyond, beyond morbidly obese, could barely move, was still driving the car, only to drive to the drive throughs wasn't taking care of my, my, my place where I was living, it was falling apart around me, getting condemned, the floor was caving in because of my size, the bathroom was caving in because of my size, sitting on the toilet, I broke the toilet, I broke underneath, the, the plumbing underneath, it was leaking underneath, the floor was starting to cave in and sink in, the bathtub was starting to sink in, and it just smelled of mildew and everything else because of the water damage, and I didn't care, you know. I still I, I use my money for food. I use my rent money for food, and my uncle bailed me out. And it was one of those things where I just didn't care anymore. I just wanted to live to die. I was living to eat instead of eating to live. So it was not a nice put in this combination. So I definitely understand what Bill was going through, like, you know, getting stuck in that, having needed the food, needed the liquor to survive, just like I needed the food to survive day to day. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And we have time for one more share. I want to unmute. All right, then. Go ahead, Penny C. Go right ahead. Thank you, Santa. Um, Yeah, uh, what I like to say about this uh, reading this morning is that second paragraph that starts with liquor ceased to be a luxury. I ask my sponsees and I suggest to, to others that I talk to that we take that paragraph and rewrite it with our own history. If anyone is having a hard time identifying with Bill as an alcoholic and when we are compulsive overeaters, then this is a marvelous way to find what you really were like. Then this this one little paragraph just so mine started with binge eating became a necessity and went on from there and how, you know, he um, says at the end that, that renewed his wife's hope. Well, that's what it was with my family. You know, I renewed their hope and then dashed their hope over and over again. Um, losing weight, gaining weight, um, just just being happy with myself and then, then just so miserable. So that's just a, a suggestion I'd like to make is that, you know, um, Take this paragraph and write your own history using this as as a as a sample. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. And thank you, Penny C. And there's a minute remaining, and I'll go ahead and take it. What stuck out for me, and I haven't underlined the word, nevertheless, because that was me. Nevertheless, I still thought I can control the situation. And you might as well tattoo that to my forehead because I needed that reminder repeatedly. And I'm so grateful today that and I be, when I reflect on my thinking, I was really touched by Ruby P. comment about control, is that when I see the word I, when I speak of the word I today, I always pause and say, is it my higher self about to speak? What's going to come after that, the word I? Is it my higher self or is it my lower self speaking here? And that helps me to see who is in control of the situation. So thank you all. Thank you, everyone, who shared this morning. And if you didn't get an opportunity to share on the first hour, please, please join us. We'd love to hear what you have to say for the second unrecorded hour of study and immediately following this closing. Um, the share ID for Monday, December 18, 2017, I, I don't have that. 
Um, so hopefully Leo will get that to me. Um, but now we'll close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Amy W., please read A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Yes, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Santa, thank you for your service. My name is Amy W., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in California. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you, and I pass.